Hello and welcome to the Activist Podcast, brought to you by Vegan FTA, Vegan for the Animals. I'm your host, Gareth Skirr, and I'll also be joined by my wonderful co-host and wife, Jackie Norman. In this episode, we have the one and only Captain Paul Watson, founder and director of Sea Shepherd. In this interview, Paul shares his experience and expertise in advocating for marine life so that we might become better advocates for the animals and the ocean. We hope you learn as much as we did from this episode and be sure to check out our social media pages at VeganFTA on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube where you can also find this series in video format. I guess we should probably start um, back in June 1975 which was a major turning point in your life when you took part in a Greenpeace action off the coast of California. And the focus of this was to stop a Soviet whaling fleet and in doing so block the ship's harpoons from the whales. And it was during this time that you witnessed both the true insanity of humans and also the true intelligence and understanding from the species that was being hunted. Would you mind relaying this story for our viewers? I found it so poignant. Yeah, that was uh, June of 1975 and I was the first officer on the uh, Greenpeace 5. And that was the first voyage to protect the, the whales. And we found the Soviet whaling fleet about 60 miles off the uh, west coast of California. This was before the 200 mile limit. And uh, Robert Hunter and I had come up with this idea to protect the whales by uh, getting our bodies between the harpoons and the whales. You know, re reading a lot of Gandhi at the time, thought that that was going to work. And so we found ourselves in a position in a small inflatable boat in front of a Soviet harpoon vessel bearing down on us at full speed. And in front of us, eight uh, uh, sperm whales that were fleeing for their life. Uh, and every time the harpooner uh, tried to take a shot, I would uh, block the harpoon. And that worked for about 20 minutes until the captain on the Soviet vessel <clears throat> came running down the catwalk and screamed into the, uh, to the ear of the harpooner. Then he looked down at us, smiled, and brought his finger across his throat. And that's when I realized Gandhi wasn't going to do much good for us that day. And a few moments later, there was an explosion. The harpoon flew over our head, slammed into the backside of uh, a female in the pot of eight whales, and she screamed and rolled on her side, blood everywhere. And suddenly, the largest whale in the pod slapped the water with his tail and dove, and he swam right underneath of us and threw himself out of the water at the bow of the Soviet harpoon uh, vessel. But they were, they were ready for him with an unattached harpoon. And uh, the, uh, they pulled the trigger and the, hit the whale and point blank in the head and he fell back screaming rolling in agony on the surface and uh, as he did I caught his eye and he dove again and this time I saw a trail of bloody bubbles coming straight towards us and real fast and uh, he came up and out of the water at an angle that the next move would come down and fall on top of us and crush us and uh, as his head rose up out of the water and I looked into his eye I so close I could see my own reflection in the eye I saw something that really changed my life forever because what I saw was understanding. The whale understood what we were trying to do because I could see the effort he made to pull himself back and his head began to slide back into the sea and his eye disappeared beneath the surface and uh, he died. He could have killed us and chose not to do so. But I also saw something else in that eye. It was pity, and not for himself, but for us, that we could take life so thoughtlessly, so remorselessly, and for what? What were the Russians killing these whales for? They weren't eating them. They were uh, killing them for oil, primarily spermaceti oil, highly prized for high heat resistant machinery, uh, lubricating oil. And one of the things that it was in demand for, especially was for the construction of intercontinental ballistic missiles. 
And I said to myself, here we are destroying this incredibly intelligent, beautiful, sentient, self-aware, socially complex species for the purpose of making a weapon meant for the mass extermination of human beings. And that's when it struck me, we're, we're insane. Ecologically, we're certainly insane. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said at that moment, I'm, what I do for the rest of my life is to protect them and the other species in the oceans. Uh, I don't do this for people. So what that does is it makes me immune to criticism. I don't really care what people say about what we do. Because uh, 1986, after we sank half of Iceland's whaling fleet and destroyed their whale processing plant, and we shut down their operations for 17 years. Uh, a former colleague from Greenpeace uh, called me up and he said, I just want to let you know that what you did in Iceland was reprehensible, unforgivable, and you're an embarrassment to this entire movement. And I said, yeah, well, so? And he said, well, I think you should know. And I said, I don't really care, John. Uh, we didn't sink those um, ships for you or Greenpeace or any other human being. We sank them for the whales. Find me a whale that disagreed with what we did, and I promise you we won't do it again. Well, that is, that's, I just love that story. It's just so incredible. And um, just listening yeah. to it gives me chills. I can't imagine what it must have been like being there. No wonder, you know, it really ignited something within you. But um, we love um, the term you now use, you know, for your activism after that was um, aggressive nonviolence. You know, absolutely love that term and, and the way that you guys have gone about it. Um, but for um, doing this sort of activism back then, you know, we don't have the same level of information as we do now. You know, our activists now are on the front line, they can easily be backed up by a hundred studies online or uh, a huge wealth of information behind them. So for you um, speaking out for the whales, despite having that, you know, in-person uh, experience with them, you know, what was it like trying to speak out for these animals when, you know, you don't have that um, huge backing like we do today? Actually, it was much easier back then because we had more freedom to do what we were doing. Uh, it's a much more repressive uh, society uh, today. Uh, the things that we did in the 60s, the 70s, 80s, we couldn't get away with doing today. I mean, I blockaded St. John's Harbor, Newfoundland for two weeks and didn't allow any sealing ships to get out of the harbor. I mean, you couldn't imagine doing that today. They'd blow you, you'd blow you out of the water. Uh, so uh, we had much more freedom of at, for activism at the time. Uh, you know, I, I turned 70 this week and I have to say that my generation has enjoyed the greatest uh, period of freedom and material well-being of any generation of human beings ever born and will ever be born. Uh, that's, that was that period that we lived in. And we'll never see that again. The world, you know, I was born into a world with 3 billion people. There's now close to 8 billion people and it's going to keep increasing. Uh, resources are being depleted at an incredible rate. And uh, so again, uh, that, that time will never, never come again. So for young people today, uh, you're, you know, facing a future of uncertainty. You don't know. I, I had a pretty good idea what the world was going to be, you know, when I was 50 years old, uh, when I was a teenager or 60 years old. But young people today have no idea what kind of world it's going to be 50 years from now. It's almost unimaginable. Will it be Mad Max? I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, so uh, it, it really depends on our decisions over the next few few, few years. And uh, unfortunately, we live in a society where we're born as, into a society as, as hypocrites. We have no choice. Uh, what we, you know, we have choices for what we eat and everything like that, but really driving cars, transportation, uh, so many things that we just don't have any choice in. Um, and all we can do is do our best to mitigate that. I think that um, uh, that's one of the reasons our ships are all vegan vessels. 
because uh, we feel that that's a major contribution to addressing things like uh, climate change, because uh, the production of meat, the killing of 65 billion animals every year is a major uh, uh, contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, a major contributor uh, to dead zones in the ocean, a major contributor to groundwater pollution. And that's not counting the, the uh, destruction in the, of the fishes, you know, which is even greater than 65 billion. And another thing that people don't take into account is that 40% of all the fish taken out of the ocean is fed to uh, chickens and to pigs and to domestic salmon and to far-bearing animals and everything like that. So even when people eat a hamburger, they're eating a fish really. Uh, so it's a, it's a complex thing. We live in a world right now where chickens eat more fish than all the world's puffins and albatrosses. We live in a world where domestic house cats eat more fish in cans, 2.8 million tons a year than all of the seals in the North Atlantic Ocean. It's a world out of balance. Wow, that is absolutely insane. And thank you for sharing that. It's, it's, yeah, it's mind blowing. Um, before we dive deeper into activism itself, would you mind um, explaining to our viewers of the three laws of ecology and the importance of the ocean when it comes to sustaining the planet and ensuring our own very survival? Well, you know, things have certainly changed over the years. Back in 1972, uh, we actually put a billboard up in Vancouver in Canada and it had a big word in yellow letters that said ecology. And underneath in small letters, look it up, get involved. Nobody even knew what it meant. So we certainly come a long way in that respect. But at the same time, we developed uh, an understanding of what the three basic laws of ecology are. The first is the law of diversity, that the strength of an ecosystem is dependent upon diversity within it. Third, uh, second is the law of interdependence, that all of the species within an ecosystem are dependent upon each other. And third is the law of finite resources, that there's a limit to growth and a limit to carrying capacity. And when we steal the carrying capacity of other species, their numbers are diminished, the species are diminished, ecosystems are diminished, and interdependence is diminished. So all three of them go together. No species has ever survived on this planet outside of the three basic laws of ecology. Uh, we're doomed to extinction if we, if we think otherwise. And so I think it's very important that we learn or or relearn really that we have to uh, live in harmony with all other species we're dependent upon that you know a couple of years ago i had brett hume a reporter for the fox network in the u.s called me up and he said i heard that you said that worms and trees and bees and fish are more important than people i said yeah i did i did say that and they said how can you say something so outrageous as to say worms and bees and trees are more important than people i said well uh, i said it because they are they're more important than we are for the simple fact that they can live here without us but we can't live here without them we need them they they don't need us they are the uh they are the engineers of uh, the life support system of this planet if you look at this planet as a spaceship which is what it is we're on this incredible trip around the milky way galaxy and every spaceship has a life support system it provides the food we eat and the regulates climate and temperature and uh, the, the air we breathe and that life support system is maintained by a crew a crew of species that work you know relentlessly to to provide the the planet with everything it needs and we humans, we're not crew members, we're passengers. We're having a wonderful time entertaining ourselves, but what we are doing is we're murdering crew members. We're killing crew members. And there's only so many crew members you can kill before the machinery begins to break down and the life support system no longer works. That's why I always say if the ocean dies, we all die. We don't live on this planet with a dead ocean. Since 1950, about uh, almost 40% of all of the, of the phytoplankton population in the world has been diminished. 40%. Phytoplankton provides up to 70% of the oxygen in the air that we breathe. It pr produces oxygen. And we, we, phytoplankton goes extinct. There's one group of plants in the, in the ocean. If, they goes, if it goes extinct, we all go extinct. We don't live on a planet without 
uh, phytoplankton. And why is phytoplankton being diminished? Because we're killing off whales and seals and seabirds. And these are the species that provide the nutrients for the phytoplankton, the iron and the uh, nitrogen. Whale, one blue whale every day dumps three tons of manure into the ocean, heavily rich in nitrogen and iron. This is, they are the farmers of the ocean. They're pro providing the nutrients for the phytoplankton. And most people aren't even aware of that, don't even think about it. One of the real problems that we have is that this um, collective mass psychosis that we uh, as were inflicted with called anthropocentrism. This, under, this idea that we're better than everything else, that we're the center of everything else, we're the, the, the lords of creation. Uh, the reality is we're just a bunch of over-conceited naked apes who are divine, become divine legends in our own mind. But the fact is, is that we can only live so long outside of our interrelationship and interdependence with all those other species. Sure, it's... Um... <laughs> Just blows me away every time, eh? Yeah, what so, are you doing? But through the the research process for this series, um, we were absolutely dumbfounded by some of the scale and variety of the oceanic sort of genocides that are going out there. Um, for us being activists, you know, being land-based, there were so many things that we hadn't heard that were going on out there. Um, but for activists like ourselves who want to learn more and uh, want to be able to share more of this with the general public and people around us to, to hopefully get these uh, barbaric practices to end, um, could you uh, tell us about anything that sort of might not be on our radar, some of the lesser known things that are going on that we should know about? Well, of course, it's very complex. I mean, the ocean is uh, being assaulted uh, from numerous uh, factors, uh, acidification, uh, you know, climate change, uh, plastic pollution, radiation pollution, chemical pollution, noise pollution, uh, overfishing, illegal fishing, uh, all of these things are, are contributing towards a diminishment of both life and diversity uh, in the sea. The problem with the fishing industry worldwide is that uh, it's, it's, I call it the economics and politics of extinction. They know what they're doing and they're gonna do it because it makes economic sense to them. It's all, it's all short-term investment for short-term gain. They don't care if a species goes extinct. They make more money out of scarcity. Mitsubishi has 10 to 15 years supply of bluefin tuna in warehouses right now in Japan. If they stop fishing bluefin today, they could provide bluefin to their customers, I guess, for 10 to 15 years. Why won't they do it? Because they know that if they do, that the price of the, of the commodity, as they call it, in their warehouses will go down. Scarcity translates into high prices. The bluefin tuna is the most expensive fish on the planet right now, about $75,000 a fish. That's how expensive it is. And, uh, but that price would go down if they allow the it to recover. In New Zealand, there used to be a fish called the orange ruffy, you know, that was, uh, you, find, you can buy it anywhere in the world. And I remember Trader Joe's, they were selling it in, in California and that, you don't see it anymore. Uh, because it takes 45 years for that fish to become sexually mature. It lives to be 200 years old, of age, but it can't, couldn't keep up with the exploitation. So what do we do is, well, it's gone. We'll move on to something else. Take that, move on to something else. I was raised in a fishing village in Eastern Canada, and I've seen that diminishment. Back when I was a, a child, there was two things that people didn't eat, mussels and turbot, because they were considered garbage. You know, I wasn't very insulting to them, but that's what it was. It was considered garbage. I go back to my hometown now, that's what they have on the menu is mussels. Turbot, which, you know, nobody would eat, it was thrown away, is now the fish you buy in Paris in New York in a restaurant, because we have adapted to diminishment. And that's one of the problems with human beings is that adaptation to diminishment served us well 30,000 years ago when we had to adapt to diminished uh, ecosystems uh, for no, through no fault of our own. But 
Now, this adaptation diminishment is, can really be our undoing. We just accept things and move on. And uh, for instance, 1965, the very idea, if I were to tell you then that you would be buying water in plastic bottles and paying as much for that water or more than the equivalent amount of uh, petrol, you'd look at me like, you know, what kind of idiot would do that? But now it's unquestioned. We don't even think about it. We just buy water in plastic bottles. So true, so true. And it's really interesting you saying about the orange roughy. I've been living in New Zealand 30 years now, and that was something that I'd heard of at those start you know in those early years although I never had one but it was one of those fish that was promoted as being really good for you and you're right in 30 years I've never seen an orange roughy but um back when I was a little girl growing up in the UK I remember being just horrified and so sad to see the devastation and the cruelty of, of seal clubbing on TV back then and uh, through the successful campaigning which you yourself led this industry thankfully died down for some years which is amazing but incredibly though the local government then made the decision to bring the sealing industry back by throwing subsidies at it here in New Zealand um, you know we were shocked we, we didn't realize until you know a, a wee while ago to learn of the billions of dollars that our own government throws um, at the dairy industry and trying to prop that up and knowing this has given us some great ammunition knowing the figures to start conversations with non-vegans about how we shouldn't be doing this and that it's you know neither ethical or sustainable um, and people are always really shocked. Do you think that if more people knew how heavily funded these industries are, including the sealing industry, they would also boycott the, boycott the violence and campaign governments heavily for change? Do you think that would make well, a I difference? Don't see, I don't see any excuse why people don't know. Uh, it's a well-known fact that the sealing is heavily subsidized. Um, you know, the actual quota for the Canadian seal hunt every year is 450,000, but they don't take that many because there's no market for them. We've destroyed the market for them. Uh, so they do kill about 40,000 a year, and, the, and it's all packed into warehouses and uh, subsidized by the Canadian government to the tune of about $20 million a year. Uh, New Zealand, of course, subsidizes the fishing industry uh, also. Right now, by the way, we're in a lawsuit with New Zealand. We're trying to uh, get New Zealand fish products banned from entry into the United States because under U.S. law, New Zealand has failed to protect the Maui and Hector dolphins. Now, the United States court actually ruled against Mexico and, and did an embargo on Mexican fish products because they, because they were failed to protect the endangered vaquita. But I'll tell you, the Mexicans are doing more than the New Zealanders are, but they're not doing... The U.S. refused to uh, embargo New Zealand because, well, it's a trade partner and Mexico was on the outs. But uh, we're suing and we're hopefully in, in January we'll get a uh, decision on that, that uh, the U.S. courts must apply the law equally to New Zealand as they did to, to, to Mexico. But, uh, you know, it's really interesting, you know, the so-called conservatives of the world, you know, are always talking, they're always talking about communism and socialism. There is nothing more communistic on this planet than the corporate welfare bums who are taking money from taxpayers everywhere for the subsidies of everything from logging to mining to, uh, to uh, farm animals to fishing. I mean, the amount of money, $76 billion a year is spent on subsidizing worldwide fisheries, and it doesn't even make that kind of money. You know, these, these industries would not survive on their own. It, it takes, for instance, those big super trawlers, it takes hundreds of millions of dollars to put a ship to sea. And that means they have to catch an incredible amount of fish just to pay off the bank loans. So there is this catch 22. They borrow the money, they got to pay off the money, they got to catch as much as they can in order to do it. Every single commercial fishery in the world, save one that I know of, which is the Alaska fishing salmon fishery, every save one of those is in a state of collapse. 
And the only reason Alaska fisheries are not collapsing is because of the uh, of the uh, hatcheries and uh, you know the fact that they've also banned uh, salmon farming in, in Alaska. So that's the only place in the world I know where it it hasn't it isn't collapsing. Everywhere else, it's highly subsidized and is and is collapsing. Well, that was so interesting like for me to hear about the New Zealand and the lawsuit stuff because I had no idea that was going on and yes yeah, good old clean green kind yeah. New Zealand huh <laughs> so well, uh, you know there's always politicians are always great at saying things you know and I, I'm sure you got a good leader in New Zealand and everything but for instance she got all of this thing about we're going to ban offshore drilling every oh wow New Zealand's going to ban offshore drilling then you look at the small print in 2055 mm -hmm. <laughs> you know yeah uh, but the problem is politicians can't make those decisions because it makes them unpopular and they won't do anything that's unpopular. That's why they call politics the art of the possible. Uh, so it doesn't attract courageous people. It doesn't attract visionary people. It attracts very practical people or, who look at it as a way of, uh, of taking advantage of, a, of an established system to further their own well-being, really. Yeah. yeah, interesting for sure. Um, Every single social movement in the history of humanity has been championed and led by the passion and the courage and the imagination of individuals or groups of individuals. No government has ever achieved anything. The U.S. government didn't end slavery. That was the passion of uh, and the work of Wilberforce and Douglas. They just finally had no choice but to accept it. Women didn't get the vote in the United States because of, uh, of Woodrow Wilson. He signed the bill, but he was a main opponent to women getting the vote until the suffragettes finally got the, what they wanted after years of being arrested and, and beaten up and everything else. He gets the credit for what they did. Politicians cause problems. They don't solve problems, and they take credit once the problems are solved. Yeah, that's so true. I, I hope all of our activists watching this are uh, listening to that and feeling empowered themselves to get there and, and to be those change makers because, mm. yeah, we, we've really got to rely on um, those who are out there doing it, you know, not those in the office pushing the pens around. Yeah, so, um, but there's another practice that through your work we were educated about, and that was um, shark finning and just the truly barbaric nature of it. And like i think if the majority of the population were to to put a land animal in the place of what's happened to these sharks you know if you to put a, even a giraffe you know um, something quite random from most most people in in the situation learn how these these animals are mutilated robbed of vital body parts and then dumped alive back into the ocean where they will have a slow and agonizing death like i oh you people think go crazy people a hundred mile wide net on the Serengeti, drag it across the plains, drag everything down to the ground, cut off the tails of the elephants. Uh, that would be the equivalent. You know, there's no difference between a bluefin tuna and a cheetah. One is uh, the fastest fish in the ocean, or the other one's the fastest uh, land animal. But we would never allow what we do to bluefin tuna to be done to the uh, to the cheetahs. Uh, you know, when we we accuse Africans who kill mountain gorillas and giraffe and elephants. Oh, they're you know they're eating bushmeat, you know, and we got to put an end to the bushmeat trade. The fishing industry is a bushmeat trade. It's the same thing as you know a, a bluefin tuna, a shark. That's bushmeat, <laughs> except that the bush is in the ocean. That's all. That's the only difference, you know. Um, we justify our eating a seafood. You know, how many people do you meet who say, "Well, I'm a, I'm a vegetarian, but I eat, I, I eat seafood," you know? Far too many. <laughs> 
from, from my point of view, it's actually worse <laughs> because even if you're eating seafood, you're contributing towards eating meat too. But still, you know, one is a wild animal too. And we don't allow that kind of mass marketing or mass commercial exploitation of any other wild animal, you know. So there's big differences of fish from domestic animals are, is one's wild and one, one isn't. Uh, the other thing that we've done is we've uh, now we're now raising salmon on salmon farms and incredibly destructive practice. And people say, yes, but now we're going to alleviate uh, the number of fish we take from the oceans by raising them in the, on the fish farms. No, you're not. It takes 50 fish caught from the ocean to raise one salmon on a salmon farm because they eat fish. So therefore, you have to catch them and grind them up into pellets. But nobody wants to eat uh, a farm-raised salmon because the way it's raised, because it's got uh, dirty white flesh, because salmon get the pinkness to their flesh by eating krill. How are you going to duplicate that? You put dye in the food pellets and artificially dye the flesh while they're alive. Plus, then you're heavily intensive with, uh, because they're concentration camps, basically, heavily uh, use of antibiotics to control disease, uh, viruses that get outside of the, of the salmon farms and infect indigenous populations, incredibly destructive industry. But, uh, and you know, for instance, if you or I were to take a piranha and put it into a pond or a lake in New Zealand or something, I mean, that's a crime. I mean, you're introducing an exotic species, an, an invasive alien species into an ecosystem that doesn't belong. And yet here we are taking an Atlantic predatory fish, the Atlantic salmon, putting it into the waters of British Columbia, Chile, Tasmania, Scotland. Uh, well, Scotland's not exotic, but still, it doesn't belong in Tasmania, it doesn't belong in Chile, it doesn't belong in, the, in, in British Columbia, and therefore it's spreading diseases to the fish populations in those areas. But they get away with it because it may, it's a billion dollar industry. You know, money justifies everything that these people do. And that uh, you and I could not, you know, there are laws for us and there are laws for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy. We, I, um, we went on a, a, a tourist cruise recently and we had to go past a couple of salmon farms in New Zealand just before the Cook Strait and everyone was like, oh, isn't it great? These salmon farms, this is where you get your wonderful New Zealand, you know, Chinook salmon and all this. And, and all I could think of was the pollution of the, the massive of fish that were there. But yeah, it's, it not you know. only pollutes the water, it pollutes your body because of the antibiotics and the chemicals that are used in it. So anyway, it, it's just really... Uh, I, insane to to eat that a fish that's raised on a salmon farm it just doesn't make any sense I mean, you know people will eat anything now though i mean look most of the food that that, that produces full of uh you know all sorts of uh, additives and uh, all kinds of chemicals and everything like that and we just sort of accept that you know because basically as a species we don't really think very deeply <laughs> No, no. And it, it doesn't help when things are hidden from us either. And this stuff is not, you know, it's, it barely makes a small print if that. And uh, it's, so not, it's, it's not really hidden. You know, if you're really, I mean, we live in a information age like no other. There is no excuse for ignorance. None. Anything you want to find out, you can find out. The science is there. It's people are lazy. That's all. Yeah. Simply lazy about it. And, um, you know, and a lot of it, what, here's one of the, a lot of people say, well, what should we teach young people? And, you know, my answer to that, don't teach them anything. Listen to them. They know what the hell's going on. They have a natural intuition there to understand it. I mean, you listen to six-year-olds and they can tell you more about the natural world than an adult. You know, you take a, a six-year-old, stick them in an educational system, teach them how to be an idiot, really. Uh, you know, I learned that back in the Queen Charlotte Islands many years ago. I had the opportunity to speak on an Indian reservation to a school. And uh, the, in the morning, we spang, uh, spoke to the kindergarten and we said, uh, hey, how many of you kids speak the Haida language? Every one of them. How many kids know anything about whales? 
We didn't have to say anything. We just listened to them. By the time we got middle to middle school, half of them spoke the language, half of them cared about whales. And by the time we got to the seniors, not one of them spoke the Haida language and nobody gave a damn about whales. So we took 12 years of education to turn these intelligent children into raving morons. That is so true. We didn't think about it. You know, growing up in the UK, I remember still now to this day when I learned about nature and wildlife and flora and fauna and all of that stuff. Um, I, I still haven't used algebra that I learned at school. <laughs> but, um, it's, it's insane. <laughs> For NASA, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, watching the, the footage from documentaries that, and series that you have featured in, such as Shark Water and Whale Wars, the ships that you're campaigning to stop, they all have research written on them. Can you explain why they're deliberately labeling their boats this way and, and what they're actually trying to hide? In 1987, uh, the worldwide moratorium on commercial uh, fish, uh, whaling was brought into effect by the International Whaling Commission. So they all had to stop their activities. Norway and Iceland just said, oh, to hell with you, we're going to do it anyway. And so they just blatantly broke the law. Uh, Japan, though, decided to be sneaky. Oh, yeah, okay, well, we're going to comply with the law. So we're going to end commercial whaling. We're going to do research whaling. So we're going to kill these whale whales uh, in order to, discuss, to uh, investigate what they are all about. Of course, you don't want to waste the meat, so we'll just sell that meat in the Japanese market. But uh, it was just a ploy, and everybody knew it. Finally, in 2014, we were able to get, uh, thanks to Australia and New Zealand, taking them into court. The International Court of Justice ruled that it's bogus. There was no, no validity to it. And in 2015, there was no whaling because Japan was told by the International Court of Justice, you know, you can't do this. But in 2016, they did what Norway and Iceland did. Ah, the hell with it. We're going to do it anyway and just ignore the, uh, the International Court of Justice. That actually backfired on them because uh, the next year, uh, the International Court of Justice ruled in the uh, favor of the Philippines over a, an island dispute with China. And Japan jumped into it and said, you know, you have to abide by the regulations of the IWC and, they, and the IWC ruled in the Philippines favor. And China said, oh yeah, well, we don't see you doing it. <laughs> you know, so the hypocrisy is just amazing. It's like, it's like cocking the shotgun and then pointing it straight at your foot, isn't it? <laughs> it's all, you know, just to get as much economic advantage as, as possible. All these nations are, are that they, you know, they all, as long as we have this attitude that our whole existence is about unlimited growth, then we're not really going to go anywhere. The, the, only, the only thing that we share that philosophy with is cancer. Yeah, sure. very true, very true. But, um, for some of our viewers who uh, may not have seen some of these amazing programs, and uh, for any of our viewers out there who haven't seen any of the documentaries and series, like get out there, watch them now, or well, after this anyway. Um, what are some of the methods that Sea Shepherd used to try and disrupt and dismantle some of these industries? And um, how do you go about practicing the aggressive non-violence? Well, I set up a strategy of aggressive nonviolence originally because, uh, you know, I, you know, governments have a monopoly on violence. Uh, so, you know, you, if you get violent, they'll be more violent towards you. So you have to strategically find a way to, to deal with this. Uh, you know, in the beginning, like Greenpeace's position is, uh, you know, bearing witness. And, uh, and, and that's fine to a point. And they said, well, you know, we got to practice what Gandhi preached. But what did Gandhi preach? He didn't preach nonviolence uh, as a philosophy. He preached it as a tactic. As he said one time, if it was a choice between violence and pacifism, I would not choose pacifism because pacifism means doing nothing. But 
What Gandhi was able to do is understand that nonviolence was a great tactic to use against the British. It wouldn't have worked against the Germans, wouldn't have worked against the Stalinist Russians. They would have been put a Gandhi up against the wall and shot him without any hesitation. But what Gandhi was able to do with the British was to humiliate the British because they are so goddamn self-righteous that they would just say, well, you know, uh, we're, we're more moral than you are. And the British said, well, nobody's more moral than us. It, it just totally embarrassed them, you know? Uh, so it worked for them, but it doesn't work in every time. So you got to come up with a strategy that's going to be workable, but at the same time, isn't going to backfire on you. And that one is what I call aggressive nonviolence. And after 43 years of operations, we've never caused a single injury to a single person, but we have shut down hundreds of illegal operations. I don't believe that destruction of property, which is being used for illegal activities, is violent. It's an act of nonviolence. If somebody's about to shoot an elephant and you, and you smack the rifle out of his hands, that's an act of nonviolence. You know? But of course, we live in a society where material, materialism and property is more valued than, than life. A good example that a few years ago in Zimbabwe, um, a ranger shot and killed a poacher who was about to kill a black rhinoceros. And human rights groups around the world condemned them. How dare you kill a human being to protect an animal? And his response, I think, really illustrated the incredible hypocrisy of our societies. He said, you know, if a man robbed Bar a Barclays Bank here in Harare, ran out the door with a bag of money, shot him in the head right there on the street, killed him right in front of everybody, you call me a hero and give me a medal. How is it that the future heritage of this nation is not worth a bag of paper? You know, mm -hmm. I think that really illustrates where our values lie. And uh, again, you know, imagine going into the city of Mecca and spitting on the black stone. Why well, your chances of getting out of there alive are somewhat remote. Go into Jerusalem and hack away at the wailing wall with a pickaxe. You're going to get shot by an Israeli soldier and nobody will have sympathy for you. But each, each and every day, we go into the most beautiful cathedrals of the natural world, the rainforest of Amazonia or the Great Barrier Reef off of Australia, and we totally desecrate and destroy these cathedrals. And how do we respond? Uh, a few people dress up in animal costumes and jump around with picket signs or they write letters to their politicians. But if the Great Barrier Reef, if the Amazonian rainforest was as valuable to us, if we loved it as much as some old wall in Jerusalem or a decrepit old stone in Mecca or a statue in Rome, we would literally rise up and, and fight to, to ensure that it's protected. But we don't do that because our values are anthropocentric. We have created this world where we are the center of creation, so much so that we've even decided that we'll create the gods that created us because every single religion in the world holds humanity at the center as all important. And that is so false, it is so fake that uh, you know we're living a delusion. Now, we are primates uh, and we've only been around for a very, very short time with the last sur uh, surviving species of hominid. We haven't done that well. There's 700,000 species of beetles. You know, they're doing a lot better than we are. Stop the podcast. We'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to one of our partners, Animal Activism Mentorship. The Animal Activism Mentorship seeks to achieve animal liberation through empowering people to become activists and build a community of individuals or willing to make the change. With free workshops, resources and personal mentoring available from some of the most highly acclaimed and experienced activists in the vegan world, the AAM is invaluable for both would-be and seasoned activists alike. Head on over to animalactivismmentorship.com and sign up today. Now, back to the podcast. Oh, it's, it's insane and, and thank you, you know, 
thank goodness for people like yourself and you know it obviously shows that that the whole aggressive non-violent approach really works i know for us when we're watching sea uh, shepherd carrying out all these actions even for people like gareth and i who aren't that great they're not that confident around the water we just get so pumped with adrenaline watching what is going on and we just want to jump on the nearest boat and join in you know who knows maybe one day we will but we had to ask you know what is the adrenaline like for you in that moment I, I don't have that. I don't experience that. Uh, you know, to me, it's, I've been doing this all my life. So it's sort of like in a confrontation situation, you're just pretty much, uh, uh, you have to be detached uh, and make your decisions uh, without any emotion. You know, you're not angry. You're not excited, really. You know, you just have to make those decisions. Um, and and that, that's best. I mean, that's the only way. You know, in fact, one of my crew members, uh, it's, he, he, he's actually an emergency, uh, emergency room uh, surgeon in California, one of the best in the hospital. And what's his secret? He doesn't like people. And so I said, well, why does that make you such a good surgeon? He said, I'm a mechanic. I work on the machine and I do the best job I can. And I'm not, I'm not obstructed by emotion, uh, you know. So whether the patient lives or dies isn't important to him. The fact that he actually does his job is important to him. And in fact, his success rate is greater than those who get, you know, are more emotional about it. I mean, that's, it's a bizarre sort of thing, but that is the reality of it. If you're going to be an activist, you have to be able to be detached from, from those emotions. Hmm, yeah, so that's brilliant to know. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, we, we really liked one thing you said, um, is that you know that the the animals in the ocean are your clients and you know you it's up to you to do a good job for your clients and i think we can apply that to every species in the in the animal kingdom you know they are our clients and it's up to us to do a good job of protecting them i love that term right and also how people what people do is really up to each and every individual you know i always say when people say well what should i do find out what your skills and abilities are and where your passion lies and harness your passion to the virtues of courage and imagination and go for it. So whether that approach be litigation or legislation or education or direct action, it doesn't matter. It's what you do best. If you're good with a camera, you're a photographer, if you're a lawyer, if you're a teacher, it doesn't really matter as long as you have your ultimate objective is to make this a better world. Yeah, that's the message that we share here at Vegan FTA, and it's yeah. something that we are really striving to do with our audience and our activists is to get them to all about. Yeah. speak out in whatever form, you know, best suits them, because we all have different uh, talents and abilities, as you say, you know, and it's, um, yeah, I really hope people watching this are, are looking at themselves right now to see what they can be doing in this mm -hmm. field. Now, I'm going back to the practicing um, aggressive non-violence, you know, we're thinking uh, as we're doing the questions about this, you know, why aren't we doing this more on land? You know, like we, we need to be doing this, not just for the sea creatures, but also um, our, our friends here up, up on the dry bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, we, do, we do have one advantage being on the ocean is that uh, there is no law there. We are the law. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so we, we can do things that you can't really do on land. What we have been doing over the last few years, we started it with Ecuador in 1999, and now we've really built up on it since 2015, is partnerships uh, with enforcement. So right now we have official partnerships with Colombia and Peru and Mexico and Ghana and Benin and Tanzania and, uh, and uh, Namibia and Liberia. And what that means is that we operate in their waters with their authority. And uh, that enables us to make incredible numbers of 
arrests of poachers and to intervene. To, we've confiscated 120,000 uh, meters of illegal net in uh, the Sea of Cortez to protect the endangered vaquita. And I'm quite confident the vaquita would be extinct if it wasn't for our interventions over the last five years. And uh, But you have to really take a, a, a look at it, you're the strategy for everything you're produced in. So if you're working on land, what do you want to do? Do you want to, you can be an infiltrator, you can be an artist, you can be, uh, you know, all sorts of different things, but always do it with a, a good strategic base. Now, one of the problems that I find, you know, with Extinction Rebellion, which I do support, but here's the problem, is that a lot of people are encouraged to practice civil disobedience. And that's well and good, except for one thing. They don't take into account that if you get arrested, you pretty much have hamstrung your uh, life for the rest of your life. You know, you now have a criminal record. Uh, you cannot go to other countries. Uh, you cannot go to certain, do certain things. You're always being hampered by that. So be very, very careful in your activism that you don't put yourself in a position because governments are very good at dealing with civil disobedience. They've, they've had decades of experience with it. They know how to isolate it and deal with it. And so they also say, you know, well, let them get away with it, let them do it, let them do this and everything like this, but we control the situation. As long as they control the situation, they don't care what you do. But so it really requires a lot of imagination and new approaches, new ideas uh, to, get around, to get around that. Um, also remember that the most important or the most valuable, most powerful weapon on the planet is a camera. If it's not on camera, it didn't happen. So make sure you document everything you do. That's one of the things we've done with Sea Shepherd is everything is documented. And, and that's not only a self-defense, but it's a way of educating people. You know, so when they accuse us of doing something, so well, here's the footage, you know, you can take a look at it for, for yourself. Um, you know, for instance, uh, during when the making of Sharkwater, for instance, I was charged with eight counts of homicide or attempted homicide because of accusations by fishermen in Costa Rica. And we went into court and I said, well, here's the footage. And they dropped the charges. And then a week later, they charged me with eight counts of assault. And I said, well, here's the footage. Look at it. And they dropped the charges. So, you know, they kept trying to come after us. But we had that documentation, which is your uh, is your best uh, defense. Yeah, that, that's. Well, that, that brings us into our next point, you know, because we we're going to ask, you know, do you believe it's one of the most vital tools any activist can have is a, is a recording device, you know, of some format, whether it be uh, sound, video or uh, photographs? Absolutely. Yeah. Document everything you do. You know, everybody should carry a camera or a GoPro or whatever. <laughs> on that. Uh, we didn't have this advantage back in the, in the 60s and 70s. You know, when we were out there confronting those Soviet whalers, we had eight minutes of film footage in a in a 16 millimeter camera and after eight minutes you had to take that film out put it in a black bag and do all sorts of things put it back in you didn't have like a video recorder so everything had to be you you know you couldn't waste any time on that and you, you couldn't get that thing developed until you got back to shore and and went into a, a studio a laboratory in order to get it properly developed so technologically we're far far more advanced uh, now and we should take advantage of those advances in uh, technology with computers and with uh, with the social networks and everything uh, as much as we can which is a great uh, asset now that wasn't available 20 30 40 years ago yeah. yes true good to know and um, one thing we loved from the uh, Watson documentary which really stood out for us is your use of the media and how critical it is to understand them in order to manipulate them basically into putting animals and their plights out there which you guys are just such pros at can you tell us a little about you know boldly using the media in our advocacy to make a difference well yeah again it's kind of using imagination I, I always find it funny when people say you know you guys are media manipulators 
Yeah, so isn't Coca-Cola and anybody running for office and for political office. That's what it, the media is all about, media manipulation, you know. And how do you manipulate the media? Well, you have to give the media what the media can't resist, what the media wants. The media only understands four elements, sex, scandal, violence, and celebrity. Every story has one of those elements. And if it doesn't, it's not a story. If you have all four elements, you have a super story. One of the big super stories we did years ago in 1984 is I was uh, opposing the killing of wolves in Northern Canada. We had the violence of them shooting at wolves and the violence of them threatening to shoot us if we came there. And then uh, we had a scandal of the environment minister taking a bribe from a big game hunting association. So we had, we had violence and scandal. I said, how do I round this up? So I recruited Bo Derrick as our spokesperson. And at the press conference, you know, which is packed, uh, this journalist for the Vancouver Sun said, oh, come on now, what does Bo Derrick know about wolves? It's absolutely ridiculous having her as your spokesperson. I said, well, if I had Dr. Gordon Haber or Dr. David Meck here, the two foremost wolf biologists in the world, be an empty room. But the place is packed. And you know what? This is going to be the front page newspaper uh, article of your newspaper tomorrow. You're going to write it. Your editor is going to give it a headline. You know what? Not a damn thing you can do about it, is there? <laughs> and, it and they can't. That's where it was. Because, you know, that's why we took Bridget Bardot to the ice flows in Newfoundland to, you know, that guaranteed us a cover of every major uh, magazine in the world. And, when I, you know, and our, we have a celebrity advisory board. And on that advisory board, we had Sean Connery, late Sean Connery. Uh, we have Pierce Brosnan. We have uh, Christoph Lambert and Christian Bale and Richard Dean Anderson. And... Um, and William Shatner, I said, how can we, how can we lose? We have two James Bonds, we have Batman, we have MacGyver, we have uh, the Highlander, and we have, um, we have uh, Captain Kirk. <laughs> you know? That's fantastic. And, and uh, we have William, and we have Martin Sheen, who a lot of people think in the United States was actually president. <laughs> Because that's the media culture that we live in. Well, that knowledge really is power, especially yeah, as I say, when it comes to using these. Um, these tools like the media are for our gain or more for the animals gain. And um, sometimes in like the vegan community, we see these arguments pop up, you know, and they say about, oh, we shouldn't be hero worshiping. And for ourselves, you know, we see, you know, when you have celebrities uh, like, like the ones you've mentioned, you know, it's like, we should be applauding them, especially when they're taking their time using their influence to um, try and save these animals. I remember listening to a podcast in the research for this about, uh, I think it was when Pamela Anderson was on one of your campaigns and the fact that she got you into so many other places that, you know, yeah, as I say, with um, with the Wolves campaign, you know, people wouldn't come, people wouldn't check it out if it wasn't for those faces. So it's um, we should be celebrating our, our celebrities, I guess, on our side. Well, what Pamela Anderson did is uh, I wrote a speech to be read to uh, the Russian government and to Putin. He's not going to listen to me, but I sent her there. She gave the speech and he actually uh, freed those orcas and belugas. You know, I couldn't do that. But she could do it. Uh, so, you know, and as, as far as hero worshiping and everything, I mean, look, 3,000 years of, uh, of human history has shown that's what we're all about. You know, whether it be Achilles or Julius Caesar or most of our go goddamn heroes are a bunch of violent fanatics anyway. But, you know, so I think that when you can find people of compassion, whether it be Mahatma Gandhi or Martin Luther King or people like that, yeah, yeah, elevate them. You know, elevate them above the despots and the authoritarians and that. Do you want, do you want uh, history to reflect that kind of heroism or the more benevolent kind of heroism? And that. So, uh, and, and unfortunately human beings, uh, human culture is engineered to, uh, to have that kind of um, sort of leadership type of uh, protocol really. 
so true it makes me wonder how many people didn't realize that cows had to give birth and lose their calves you know for the milk for their coffee until the joker got up at the oscars you know and and made people think so yeah i'm i'm all for that um we're also hearing you know i hear so many people criticizing greta thumber well what's a 16 year old know about this what this this is ridiculous well what other 16 year what other adult has actually been able to sit down with world leaders and address the united nations and get nominated for the nobel prize and everything and at 16 years old i think she's doing incredible job and everything like that to me it's just all jealousy and whatever but uh, I think that uh, more and more people like her uh, are emerging that's making a big difference definitely and at least she's trying you know mm. I mean one of the things we we recently had uh, here in New Zealand um, some wonderful friends of ours organized a Wellington Animal Rights March which clashed with the Wellington City Centre Christmas Parade and so you know we got accused of vegans ruining Christmas and you know um, corrupting children with our lewd signs that said, you know, F factory farming and things like that. But, you know, over the years, uh, you know, we attracted the, the march attracted a lot of uh, media attention for this. And it wasn't necessarily um, putting veganism in a, in a good light. But over the years, you yourself have been in the media countless times. And we all know that the saying, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Do you think there is truth to that within activism? There's no such thing as bad publicity. You know, South Park, I don't know if you guys see South Park now. Yes. South Park, yeah. everybody, everybody said, well, you know, South Park made you look bad and everything. I said, no, they did. South Park made me look great. It didn't matter what they said about me. They put me on the same platform as Tom Cruise, the Scientologist, all these other people, whatever, uh, and everything. That means they, that you made it in the in the mainstream culture. If they're, if you're being lampooned by South Park, you made it in a lot. And it was really funny because I wrote a letter to Trey Parker and those, you know, the South Park people. I said, and I said, I thought it was a great episode. You know what he said? He said, well, he's a goddamn liar. You know, how could he like that? I said, well, I liked it because of, of the exposure that, that, that you gave me, you know, and everything. So they weren't expecting that kind of answer. It doesn't matter what they, they say uh, about you at all. It doesn't, you know, as, as I think as uh, Oscar Wilde said, you know, the only thing worse than people talking about you is no, nobody talking about you, <laughs> you know, uh, and that. So it, um, you, you have to say these things. I, I think to be a, a conservationist, to be an activist, to be an animal rights person, you have to rock the boat. You have to piss people off. You know, you have to make waves. And if you're not doing that, then you're not doing your job. So, you know, really, uh, the other thing is people shouldn't be, shouldn't be influenced by what other people think about them. I mean, people are the problem. I mean, the reason we're in the, the, the world's in the state it, it is, is because of people. So the opinions of people are really not that relevant, you know? Mm. So I just, uh, you know, criticism comes my way. I just, yeah, whatever, you know, just go on. You know, when people say, well, uh, you know, well, you should have as much respect for people as you do for animals. Yeah, well, we do. We don't eat people either. <laughs> yeah, Very that's true. so true. <laughs> Like, um, and you're so right about South Park, you know, when mm. I said oh, we were interviewing Captain Paul Watson and I have two adult sons and they both said, whoa, he was in South Park, you know, so yeah. they, they do, if it gets it out there and gets out the work you're mm. doing and who you are, then yeah, fantastic. It, it all depends as well from the light that you're looking at it with, because, you know, they do show that, you know, the Japanese are catching all these whales and dolphins, you know, and um, and it's for a silly reason in their thing and it, well, they do it for a silly reason in real life too, and it's mm. just... Um, like we rewatched uh, the film Chicken Run the other day. Like it's a kids' cartoon thing, but when you look at it from an animal rights perspective, you know there's a whole another level to it. You know, yeah, but um, moving on to um, factory farming, and it's a contentious issue for vegans and non-vegans alike. Um, both calling for the industries to sort of be shut down. You know, like no one likes factory farming, and um, 
What many people don't realize, however, though, is the, the sea has also become an external factory farm. Um, it's like here in New Zealand, our dairy farming is external factory farms. It might be grass fed, but these are still industrial systems put out upon the land or in this, in, in your case, you know, the ocean. Um, do you think, yeah, factory farming is an, an accurate description, though, of what's happening uh, with our fishing industries? Well, it is factory farming, yeah. But here's one thing about factory farming that uh, they both have in common, whether it be in the sea and on land, is that uh, they're petri dishes for the uh, zoonomic transmission of viruses. Uh, and we're going to have more and more of that. You know, COVID-19, for instance, happening right now is comes from the animal exploitation uh, industry. But it, more, more so than that, when you diminish ecosystems and you diminish species, you set up a situation where, for zoonomic transmission. The reason being is that, you know, viruses are associated with every plant and animal on, on this planet. We need them. They're very positive. Viruses are very beneficial. But when you diminish a species or an ecosystem, you set us a problem for the viruses associated with those species. They got to have somewhere to go. Where are they going to go? Uh, and they're gonna to jump to the most attractive hosts they can find. And 8 billion of us are very attractive as a host. Now, the virus doesn't wanna kill the host, but while, trying, while working out a way of coexistence, a lot of the hosts will die, of course. But you know, it's not in the interest of the virus to kill the host. <laughs> but so they'll try and work out some sort of coexistence. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to them like they have a conscience, which they don't, but you know, they're a natural sort of a, a thing. But over the years, we've had West Nile, we've had Zika, we've had Ebola, we've had Hanta, we've had MERS and SARS. All of these things are emerging ever since 1995. If you read Lori Garrett's The Coming Plague, she predicted all of this, it's coming. And the, the only reason, COVID, the only thing that COVID-19 is different is, is that it affects white people, you know? And everybody's, oh my God, we got a pandemic. Well, we've had pandemics, they've been all over the place, they're going all over, but you know, this one, well, this one's affecting us. But here's the thing, it's just a harbinger of worse to come because as more and more ecosystems are depleted, plus added to the fact that melting permafrost is releasing pathogens which have been dormant for 40, 50,000 years. Uh, 200,000 reindeer died in Siberia last year from anthrax spores that had been released from the permafrost. So we're going to see more and more of this. So the future is not looking very good. Um, you know, so yeah, so maybe we find a vaccine for COVID-19. Maybe we bring it under control. What's going to happen in 2023? What's going to happen in 2026? It's going to be worse. Um, what we are basically are becoming are aliens on our home planet, where we're living on a planet that we will not be able to sustain us unless we're wearing a spacesuit. <laughs> It's so true. It's so true. And, um, you know, just going off on a bit of a tangent, in contrast to the industrial scale fishing, you know, I have to ask with being in New Zealand, it's such a hunting, fishing, you know, hunter gatherer kind of culture. We know many people ourselves who unfortunately go out on a weekend to catch a feed of fish to bring home to the families. And, you know, they believe that they're having no impact because the amount that they are taking from the ocean is seemingly so small and insignificant. You know, it's just me. It doesn't matter if I keep doing it. What should we be saying to these people who believe they're causing no harm? Well, every uh, ecosystem, you have prey-predator relationships. In every single situation, the predator can never outnumber the prey. <laughs> Once you have a situation where the prey, uh, you, you know, where the, where the predators outnumber the prey, you have a very unnatural situation. Like here in the United States, where people say, well, I have the right to go, go deer hunting, or I have a right to go hunt bears. Okay, well, if everybody exercised that right, that's 300 million people hunting deers, you know? So it, it, it's the cumulative effect, too many people. 
So, you know, a billion people taking three or four fish a week out of the, that's a lot of fish, you know. One of the things that we could learn from, uh, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, uh, in Polynesia, which the Maori culture is associated with, but Polynesia, they had a thing called the Kapu. Uh, a shaman would declare a bay, say in Bora Bora, this bay is Kapu for the next 20 years. Anybody caught fishing in that bay, it was a death penalty. And people say, well, that's a little extreme. No, not if you look at it from their point of view. They knew that if the fish disappeared, they would die. So it was a matter of survival. So today there are no kapu areas anywhere in the world. There is no place for the fish to hide. There's no place for the fish to recover. At the COP21 conference in Paris in 2015, I put forth an idea, which I knew was gonna be rejected, but I said, look, if we really want to address climate change, we're really and sincerely want to address climate change, Let's give the ocean the opportunity to repair the damage that we've done to it. We need to declare at least a 50 year moratorium on all industrialized fishing operations. Give the ocean time to repair the damage that we've done to it. Because according to Dr. Boris Warren and Dr. Daniel Pauly, the two foremost fisheries biologists in the world today, by 2048, there won't be a fishing industry because there won't be any fish. And, uh, you know, but again, people don't look into the future. I asked a fisherman in Alaska one time, I said, look, for no other reason, protect the fisheries for your children so that they can be involved in it if that's what you want. And his answer to me really illustrated the problem. He said, well, you know, in five years, my mortgage is gonna be paid. And after that, I really couldn't give a damn. So why does somebody like that have children? Well, it's because it's what you do. You know, don't really give much thought to it. <laughs> it's just what you do. But if you really loved your children, you would care what kind of world it's going to be. And by the way, you know, the word mortgage, I don't know if, if you know what the word means translated into Latin. It means death contract or contract onto death. So everybody's so busy paying off their death contracts that they don't know how to live. That is so true. We couldn't, we couldn't agree more. <laughs> we actually sold our house. We got rid of the mortgage, sold our house and traveled for four years up until COVID before we started doing this and, and found vegan FDA. So yeah, couldn't agree more. It is, it is a death contract. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's a shame that so many people just, just see things that way, mm -hmm. don't they? they? They just don't know how to live and, and how to protect our future. But um, well, one, thing I would, one thing I would want to say though, the vegan movement is probably the fastest growing movement on the planet. You know, 1970s, 19, early 1980s, if you ask somebody what a vegan was, they say, well, is that from the planet Vega or something? You know, they, they had no idea. <laughs> you know, they knew what vegetarians were, but, you know, but, but the whole concept of veganism was so unknown, not even imagined. So when you look at it today, that's, that's real progress. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we've got to be the change makers. Like you say, we can't rely on governments to do it for us. And, um, you know, that leads in quite nicely in the past that you've, you've said how important it is that Sea Shepherd is a movement rather than an organization. How important is it that um, veganism as a whole is a movement rather than what we sometimes seem to be a group of segregated organizations within the movement? Well, whether they're segregated organizations is still part of the movement. And, uh, you know, it is a movement. Sea Shepherd is a movement, uh, started out as an organization. But what I discovered when the Japanese came after me personally and Sea Shepherd in the USA specifically, is that, yeah, you can stop an individual and you can shut down an organization, but you can't stop a movement. And so that's why we decided that Sea Shepherd's got like 42 separate uh, national entities around the world. We're in, we're in New Zealand and Australia and Germany, everywhere. Uh, but they all have their own board of directors and that. And uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just sort of a figurehead, really, you know. But uh, the captains and the crews run the ships. 
but in 1979, our vessels were vegetarian, but uh, in 1999, we, they became vegan. And, uh, you know, we actually get criticized by a lot of vegan groups because we don't preach veganism. I said, we don't need to preach it. We give people the opportunity to experience it. You don't have to be a vegan to join a Sea Shepherd crew, but you have to be a vegan while you're on the crew. And so uh, it's amazing how many people have discovered they didn't die of starvation or wasted away while they were on board the ship. And a lot of people uh, through that experience became, you know, to, came to practice veganism. But I, I don't think we should make them the same mistake as a lot of religions, which is proselytizing, beating, beating people. You've got to be vegan. You've got to be vegan and everything like that. We've got to lead by example and not by, uh, by intimidation. Because you have to, you know, people, a lot of people who eat meat do have a lot of guilt feelings about that. You don't want to get make them defensive. You know, you've got to try and encourage the positive side uh, of that. I know when uh, the Beyond Meat came out and the Impossible Burger came out, all these vegans say, well, you know, it's not really uh, such and such. I said, you know, uh, they said, we're not going to go to Burger King because of that. And I said, you don't need to go to Burger King. The bloody Impossible Burger wasn't meant for you. It was meant for meat eaters, <laughs> you know? It's there to give them an alternative and everything and to practice it. So it's not saying, oh, come to, come to Burger King. It's just, and it's amazing. It caught on uh, a lot of people, a lot of people who eat hamburgers say, yeah, well, it probably is a healthier alternative and everything like this. And, and so it's caught on. Oh, wow. And uh, again, I'm another moral dilemma. I don't know how we're gonna deal with this, but it's, got, it's gotten to the point where uh, we will have meat, real meat without killing any animals. <laughs> now, what, what's what's uh, the position going to be on that? I don't really know. I haven't really come to that my, myself. But the production of uh, real meat in laboratories based on the cells, of gross cells of, of cows or whatever. And uh, on the, the positive side of it, if, uh, if we can produce meat in a laboratory and that means that 65 billion animals a year are not going to be killed, then that's probably a good thing. Yeah. I feel uh, hopefully if we, all of us vegans here today, can do our job, Hopefully it's going to be the future generation of vegans to deal with that problem. You know, we'll deal with the ones on the land now and then, um, and in the ocean, of course. <laughs> if you look at any science fiction movie or TV show, whether it be Star Trek or whatever, what do they all have in common? Except for the Klingons, everybody's a vegan. True. <laughs> that is I actually true. That. <laughs> so, um, but finally, um, it's been so enjoyable talking with you today. It is absolutely fantastic. You just, keep blowing my mind um is there any projects that you want us to know about um that shepherd are, uh sea shepherd are conducting at the moment and um where can we all go to help uh support you guys and um maybe even become part of your work well in new zealand there's sea shepherd new zealand has a website also a facebook page and that new zealand's concentrating on protecting the, the maui dolphin and the hector dolphins right now uh but uh you know right now there's a boat 200 to 300 volunteers on those ships at sea and uh, so people and they're from 25 different nations so people can get involved with Sea Shepherd by crewing on the ships by being shore volunteers by doing beach cleaning by being uh, uh, members of chapters by supporting there's so many various levels that you can be involved in it but one of the things I've always I set Sea Shepherd up in the, in the beginning was to allow for anybody to become involved we're not a professional organization in that way you know, we get criticized uh, for that. And I said, well, you know, we've never had anybody injured. And the fact is, is that I could not pay professionals to do what these volunteers do for nothing. You don't buy that kind of passion. And so we will always be a volunteer oriented uh, 
uh, movement because that's where the passion lies. Thank you for listening to this interview. We hope you have found it informative and entertaining. To learn more about Paul Watson's work, check out the Sea Shepherd website. Once again, be sure to follow us on our social media platforms for future episodes. And if you're enjoying our content, please leave a review on one of your chosen podcast platforms. This has been Vegan FTA, vegan for the animals.